Welcome to Yolitics, the home of cold beer and hot takes on Texas politics. Hey, everybody. It is another week here on Yolitics, and uh, we're back to quote-unquote normal, uh, Jason, after spending a week down in the Valley last week for the big debate that probably a lot of people didn't get to see uh, because it was on a Friday night, but hopefully uh, last week's podcast helped with that. And um, I am still a week later, I think, going through uh, some taco withdrawals. Uh, <laughs> McAllen has serious taco games. I don't remember all the taco trucks in McAllen, um, but yeah, it was fantastic. And, and an update to anyone who might uh, follow me on Instagram. So when we were down there, um, you know, we always like to, to sample beer from different parts of the state, since that's what the podcast is about Texas craft beer and Texas politics. So I found an H-E-B, and I found a lot of local beer that I have not had before. And you know Wheeler hasn't had it before. So <laughs> I bought, I think, eight or nine six-packs and uh, tried to expense it. And they gave me a verbal okay that it's okay to buy 100 bucks worth of beer. Uh, wow. Why didn't you get that okay like two years ago, I man? And that, and I'm also curious, what time did you go through the aisles of HEB buying this on that it day? It was like 10 a.m. Um, oh, nice. We were That's keeping it classy. Yeah, so, I, I'm the, you know, there's families around me, and, and I'm the guy with a cart full of uh, six-packs trying to check out with uh, families in front and, and behind me. And a little box of breakfast bars. Uh-huh. <laughs> Actually had a poke bowl as well. I have the, you know what? Oh, geez. I, I'm, I'm a big sushi fan, and I've had sushi in a lot of different places, but... Um, the grocery store sushi at H-E-B was not that bad. I was impressed. Hmm. I didn't have the rolls, All right, well, but the poke bowl is pretty good. Hats off then uh, to our sponsor today, H-E-B. No, they're not sponsoring us, but they're, <laughs> they you know, they're welcome to if they'd like to. They're getting free publicity here. Why would they sponsor us? Why would they pay right. for it? When you're just giving it to them lightly. So I, I set up all the, the um, beer stuff here, and uh, all the beer is at the station refrigerator. The beer is not uh, in, in my personal refrigerator, and I, I know you don't have any either. So I, I presume mm-hmm. that you've had to resort to whatever Mrs. Wheeler bought for you in the back of the fridge. Yeah, that is a horrible piece of news, by the way, <laughs> that uh, eight six-packs are probably just being chewed through by our colleagues right now, and we have no idea. Uh, I actually have one that I bought uh, not that long ago. This is out of Dallas, Texas, a Manhattan Project beer. It is the Red Gate Amber Lager, oh, wow. and it just has this very cool understated can, which usually I don't go for those, uh, but here we are. Yeah, you like you like all the uh, the flash and pomp and circumstance in your mark. You know, every now and then, I, every now and then, I'm a different guy when I go out uh, looking for some beers. <laughs> Manhattan Project is it, it's I love it. It's a great place. One of our producers, Michael McCardle, mentioned mm-hmm. uh, that to me a few years ago. And it's not too yep. far from my house, so I've been over there a number of times. We actually had a we did we did a podcast from Manhattan Project Brewing. Company. We did. I think that we celebrated our two year anniversary yeah. there, didn't we? Yeah, no, that's good stuff. I actually found one that I thought that you must have given me. Um, it's a Shiner Agua Fresca, and since you're Mister Spanish, tell us what there Agua Fresca means. Agua Fresca. It's um, it's these waters that you see. Um, it, well, it means fresh water. Right, it is my friend. Um, it's fresh, water. and and uh, and and it's these waters that you see that'll have like fruit in them. Uh, you know, sometimes you'll see watermelon, sometimes you'll see pineapple, uh, you know, etc. And um, they're amazingly good. Well, the fine folks at Shiner have uh, done this. This is beer brewed with watermelon and lime, with natural flavor added. So uh, smart move, Shiner. I'm looking forward. 
I'm looking forward to this one. I want to try the Orale beer too. Orale beer. Um, they just came yeah. out with it's like a like a Dos Equis type beer, Mexican lager, I believe. Hmm. Have you seen it? That right there, that right there is going to taste like a fresh summer, crisp, wonderful day. It is very nice. Is it? It's very nice. Yeah, very nice. So, so, um, so yeah. So we're this is Tuesday marks a month, Wheeler, from the election. Oh man, yeah, it's coming. already. And here's what like a freight train, uh, exactly. But but here's what people don't realize: they're looking at that freight train barreling down the tracks, but they don't see what's beyond that. And that is, you know, the elections on November the eighth. Uh, and at seven o'clock, the polls close. At seven o one, is when the race for twenty twenty four begins. Uh, or does it already? Begin it's already it's now, already underway. Kind of. I remember a few years back. It's quietly yeah. underway. You know, a few years back. Uh, I guess it's been four years now. Um, before the midterm, the last midterm election we had, uh, Ted Cruz was thinking about running for president, and he was already yep. running around the country trying to line up donors to make sure that that he would have the financial support to do that. So you know that's already it feels happened. like Ted Cruz. Yeah, it feels like Ted Cruz is still doing that now for 2024. Uh, you know, we've heard of a lot of uh, prominent uh, people who are you know potentially going to be running, and uh, we have another one who is on the podcast with us today. In fact, and Jason, I would venture to say that this is because we recorded this recently. He was at the Tribune Festival uh, in in at Trib Fest in Austin, put on by the Texas Tribune. Uh, and a big thanks to them, by the way, for helping to hook us up uh, with the interview here. Um, I would say that he was he's one of our oddest guests we have had on in two plus years. And I say that because he answered questions <laughs> like we had this we had this politician here and I'm not kidding. He like anything we threw at him, he actually answered it. He wasn't like trying to skirt it. He wasn't trying to find his way out of the question. Like a few times, he surprised me that he actually answered the question. And one of those questions, of course, was, are you running for president? And they never answer that question. They always go, ah, well, you know, we'll wait and see. But he gave more of an answer than you usually hear. Yeah, this guy, I've seen him on, on cable news for a while, uh, off and on. And his, it's Asa Hutchinson. He's the governor of Arkansas. But what I didn't know about him, is is his tremendous resume. He's a former U.S. attorney, a federal prosecutor. He's a former congressman representing Arkansas. He's a former head of the, the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA, under President George W. Bush. He's a former uh, undersecretary of Homeland Security for, for Border and Transportation, uh, also under George W. Bush. He's a two-term governor, term limited out in Arkansas. He has a hell of a resume for a Republican, and, and you know every bit of that is what you used to look for when you were trying to find a presidential candidate, someone who has the exposure to all different facets of government. And, and another oddity here uh, in politics these days, he's not a bomb thrower, very genial guy, very calm and collected. Uh, so you know, with no further ado, uh, let's get here to Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson who uh, gave us uh, some of his time recently when he was speaking at TribFest in Austin. Governor, thanks for being on the program with us here. Uh, it's not often we have too many neighbors on our podcast here. We like to keep it very Texas, but we're honored to have you uh, for this. So thank you very much. Hey, I, I hear you have your own podcast. Are you the only governor with your own podcast? Probably not, but uh, I like it. Uh, the name of it's Fast Break with Asa. 
uh, because I love my basketball and uh, it's fast moving. So I'm always glad to uh, be on somebody else's uh, podcast. And by the way, Texas and Arkansas has got so many interrelations. You should feel very comfortable with me being on the show. Yeah, and as we're speaking to you, you are in Texas uh, you, uh, with a TribFest. Um, you were invited down to speak. Um, talk to us a little bit about, um, I, I'm just going to dive right into this. Uh, everybody keeps on talking about whether you might run for president in 2024. I know that everybody's asked you about this over and over again. Uh, you said that you would consider it. Uh, you're waiting, uh, you know, a little while. I've read that you're waiting uh, through November. Um, of course, that's when, you know, your replacement will be elected there in Arkansas. Um, are you looking for anything else, though, in the vote nationally in November specifically that might help you make that decision? Uh Sure. Uh, I think that uh, you sense the mood of the public. It's a referendum on Biden's agenda. And so that's something that's important to consider. Uh, Obviously, uh, where the Republican base is and what kind of leadership they look to uh, in the future. And uh, you get in trouble in politics if you get ahead of the next election. And so, you know, I've been in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, supporting other candidates, uh, getting to know people. This is an important part of the decision-making process as well. And uh, I love getting out and, uh, you know, the vibrancy of the grassroots and the concern and love that they have for America, uh, it makes you want to be engaged. I fought very hard for decades for a uh, Reagan-principled Republican Party that's conservative but also is pragmatic and get things done and solve problems. That's the kind of leadership that I've offered in Arkansas and I think is important on the national scene as well. Just to press that, Governor, uh, you know, obviously anytime anyone shows up in Iowa, New Hampshire, or South Carolina, people start talking. Um, and and that's, that's why we wanted to ask you about that right off the top here. Just to be clear, do, do you have aspirations for higher office? Because you have a heck of a resume already. Well, I want to be in the conversation. Uh, I'm not uh, shy about saying Uh, We've got to consider 2024. I want to be in the mix in that conversation. I can't make a decision and don't want to until early next year. Uh, But absolutely, uh, this is a critical time for our country. And I have a breadth of experience in foreign policy. I have a breadth of experience in domestic. I think it's important to have governors that uh, know how to lead, uh, that offer themselves as well. Now, there's a whole host of others that are very important for our party that I like, I identify with. But you got to see uh, how it shapes up as to uh, who pulls the trigger, uh, who is actually uh, committed to it, who has the support for it, but also, you know, whether, uh, you know, somebody else getting the race might impact their decision. Mm-hmm. Governor, I would describe you, and I don't know if I'm right on this, I would describe you more as a traditional Republican, Reagan Republican, Bush Republican. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Well, other than the fact that that's uh, almost uh, antithetical to what the base is looking for. Well, that's uh, right. That's what I was going to ask you, because it seems like the party has shifted so far to the right. I mean, is uh, are you far enough right to be well, a, a contender in 24? Well, you have to look at my record in Arkansas, whether it's pro-life, uh, pro-Second Amendment, or whether you're looking at lowering taxes, which we've done, boosting the private sector, lessening regulation. That, to me, is a conservative. And, uh, and so I think uh, I have a lot to offer. Now, what's important 
and you know, I am a Reagan uh, conservative. Uh, I served in the Bush administration, but if you look at the future, the base wants, and I want somebody who's willing to go after all that's wrong uh, in Washington. Uh, I think we got to rethink a lot of things. And so you're going to have to be aggressive. You're going to have to be passionate. So it's not just being conservative, but it's saying, I'm going to stand up and fight this battle uh, for uh, the people of America because it's important. So I think you'll see me as a fighter uh, as well as somebody who is conservative. But Governor Hutchinson, do you think that you would be able, if you do run, and that's a big if still, but if you do run for president, do you think you would be able to win over uh, these Trump Republicans? Uh, I mean, you know, you've made no bones about it over the years, criticizing uh, the former president. Uh, He's called you a rhino. There's been that back and forth, uh, Republican in name only. Um, Do you think you would be able to win over those supporters if you were to make a bid? Well, that's the big test. And uh, first of all, I I think the uh, Republican base, uh, you've got many that are looking for new leadership in the Republican Party, uh, moving a different direction from chaos. Uh, And then you have the hardcore uh, Trump supporters. And yes, I want to be able to try to win those over uh, because it's, you know, a significant portion of our base. Uh, and a lot depends upon how it's all divided up. But you cannot run, you cannot uh, lead without responding to the passions that are heartfelt, that are sincere, and in many cases, right. Now, you know, I disagree with the, you know, election denying. I disagree with fighting over the past. I want to talk about the future. But uh, I think there's ways to bring those back into the Republican fold and and that's the big test for any candidate. Governor, let's talk about one of the, the, the main issues that is, is, you know, percolates with all Republicans and a lot of folks in the center, too, which, as you know, decide all the elections. And that's border security. We, we saw that the uh, latest numbers show 2.3 million people were arrested trying to cross into the southern border in the U.S. It's an all time record for Customs and Border Patrol. But you know as well as I know that no border anywhere is secure. I've been to Panmunjom, the North Korean border is not secure. Uh, The Berlin Wall was not secure at all. The Rio Grande obviously is not either. You're the former head of DEA, former undersecretary at Homeland Security. What What does acceptable look like to Republicans? You know, that's a great question. If you, of course, I was head of border security during the Bush administration while I was at Homeland Security. And we had way too high of numbers during that time. We had reached a million. Now it's more than double that number of those that have been apprehended and turned back. Uh, And we were debating, you know, what is a secure border? Then if you look during the Trump administration, it got tougher. It got down to the $300,000, $400,000 range. I think people looked at it and said, "We're, we're moving the right direction. And the key is, what are people, what, what are the cartels thinking? Are they thinking it's uh, too tough to move people through? Uh, is it uh, uh, you know a disincentive for people coming in? And that, to me, is what you've got to do. Uh, so I've got a clear outline. If you look at A, B, C, D, E, you know you got to have asylum reform. You got to have control of the border. You got to go after the cartel. They are more violent. Uh, they're more in control than they've ever been. Uh, you've got to involve our drug enforcement uh, in uh, operations there. 
the fentanyl coming in has got to stop. Uh, and then you've got to have expedited removal where, you know, some people say it's a stay in Mexico policy, but you've got to have all of those elements together to be effective in border control. And it's critical. People are frustrated by it, and rightfully so. But Governor, what, what we've role been... do you think? What role do you think immigration reform plays in this? Because Congress has not been able. They've been kicking that down the road for years and years and years and years. Immigration reform has to play some role in this, separate from the criminal element. Well, uh, it's true, and ultimately, you want to get to immigration reform, but first, you've got to get to border security. And so the first bill that goes to Congress is a border security reform bill. And I would take the $80 billion that is going to IRS and let's put that into more uh, immigration judges to move the asylum cases along uh, to make sure we've got the enforcement capability that we need. That is the highest priority. So let's first move a border security bill through and once you give people confidence, the border is secure, only then can you talk about comprehensive immigration reform. And, and not to just to press a, a little more, because I've never been able to figure this thing out. What does a secure border look like, though, to Republicans? You, you, you kind of mentioned some, some outlines there, but there's never going to be walled off, nobody in, nobody out type thing there. I mean, is, is there a number that the GOP has talked about internally that, hey, if we can get it down to, you know, 100,000 a day or whatever? I don't know that there's been any of that discussion. And let me back up just a second. Whenever you talk about immigration, you first have to recognize that our immigrants play an important role in our society. They're fabric of America. They're important to our economy. Obviously, we want a legal process for them, but uh, we, we welcome uh, those that are seeking freedom. And recently, we've had those coming from Venezuela. And uh, those are most likely legitimate asylum seekers here. And America should always have some open arms for uh, those legitimate people that are fleeing persecution. We want to do our share there. And this is in our hemisphere. As to what it looks like, I think it looks like a better entry-exit system. So we know people who've come in legally on their visa and are overstaying the visa. It Because about 40% of those that are illegally in America our visa overstays. Uh, and so it's right. that part of it as well as securing uh, the border to a greater extent. Governor, you talk about uh, a lot of these people being legitimate asylum seekers, it appears, um, from Venezuela. Uh, some of those people are ending up in, in northern cities. We, this has been in the news in a big way in recent days about the, you know, the busing programs that we've seen, been seeing from Governor Abbott here in Texas, but also uh, Governor DeSantis down in Florida reaching into Texas uh, and uh, taking some people out by air and sending them off to Martha's Vineyard. And that's been roundly criticized on, on, in in some parts of the political spectrum uh, as political theater, that these people are being used as pawns. Do you have thoughts on what's going on there? Well, I've got mixed emotions, probably just like everybody else does. Uh, first, I mean, Governor Abbott, uh, I've sent National Guard resources down to assist in his efforts. Uh, I think whenever you look at the mayor of El Paso, you, you've got to be able to move these migrants uh, out of some of the border cities. That's just a reality. He's doing that. Uh, you know, it's a little bit different whenever you're looking at uh, what Governor DeSantis did because it's, you know, it's using Florida resources to move people from Texas up to Martha's Vineyard. And that's that just uh, seems uh, a little bit uh, uh, manipulated. Uh, but 
You know, it's all making a point and remind of America that we all have a responsibility here. It is not a border security issue, border state security issue. It is a national security issue. And so they're drawing attention to it, and that's helpful. Uh, I think it's going to increase the debate, increase support for it. And it also legitimately uh, says there's something wrong with sanctuary cities. And, uh, you know, a hallmark of, uh, of my work in Homeland Security and DEA is a high level of cooperation between the federal officials and the state and local officials. We can't get it done otherwise. And now in a sanctuary city, they're saying, we're not going to cooperate with federal authorities. That is just wrong. It is not good for our country. And that's what you're having in these sanctuary cities. And and uh, I think it draws attention to that this is really a wrong direction uh, that they've chosen to go. Governor, is there a, a solution to, to gun violence that you think Republicans could live with? Well, any level of murder, attacks on children is unacceptable. So you never can set a level other than zero. And uh, that's why we're investing in securing our schools, increasing the safety. You know, we have the Second Amendment, and so uh, you're not going to restrict our way out of this. Uh, You've got to change hearts and minds. You've got to strengthen communities and churches and mental health uh, uh, systems that we have in America that are inadequate right now. And, uh, and then uh, you've got to protect our schools. So to me, that's the right approach. That's what we've done in Arkansas. Uh, long before Uvalde tragedy happened, uh, we had a school safety commission that's made recommendations. We've implemented those. We've enhanced our safety. And that's what we have to do across the board. But firearm restrictions, not part of the mix? No, no, it's not. Uh, you know, there's always going to be a discussion. I think the uh, bipartisan uh, uh conversation that was led by Senator Cornyn was helpful, uh, and it, those were some uh, fair issues to strengthen the uh, background checks, and particularly those that are, uh, you know, over 18 or between 18 and 21 and have potential juvenile records that need to be understood. Uh, these are fair discussions, and we should always look for that, but, uh, you know, it's limitations and restrictions are not the way out of this. You know, Senator Cornyn did uh, lead those bipartisan discussions, and then he was booed at the state Republican convention uh, not long after that. it's uh, He got it, roasted, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, booed is being nice. I mean, he got censured in some county uh, county parties, so it, it wasn't it wasn't good on his end there. So that, that's why we're just curious about that, because, you know, there are folks in the middle, and obviously the Second Amendment's not going anywhere. Uh, but there, there is obviously after what happened in Uvalde, there's a, a search for how can we, how can we fix things? That's right. But first of all, the fundamental question is, was the legislation supported by Senator Cornyn good or bad? And I think it was good. It was reasonable. It protected the second amendment. That's the fundamental question. The second question is how do we, uh, you know, how do the voices in the room respond to it? And, you know, good leadership is uh, trying to uh, find a solution, defend the solution, and stand up to what might be a criticism for it. So uh, I'd like, uh, that was distressing whenever I saw that, uh, uh, but that's uh, the reality of some of our activists. And uh, I think leadership says, uh, let's let's, uh, showcase what we're doing and defend our positions. And in the long run, I think it'll be uh, good for our party and good for our country. 
Let's uh, let's move on to another thorny issue, uh, and that is uh, <laughs> we got abortion. a lot of them right now, right? <laughs> Whole bag of them. Uh, let's talk about abortion because, uh, Governor, you know, we saw what happened in Kansas with the referendum there, where uh, a big margin uh, of voters decided to uh, make it known that they wanted to keep abortion legal in that state. This is ruby red Kansas, uh, not far from where you are uh, in Arkansas. Uh, first of all, your thoughts on that vote, and and second. How big of a factor do you think that abortion is going to be in these midterm elections coming up in November? Uh, and you've got, you know, some people in your party, including uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, putting forth a bill wanting to ban abortion nationwide after 15 weeks. Uh, I was surprised by the uh, referendum in Kansas. Uh, Kansas is a very conservative state. Uh not sure of all the dynamics there, but I think it caught everybody's attention, particularly candidates running this year. Uh, Beyond that, I think it's a little unpredictable. I think the media has overstated the case that abortion is going to be driving uh, the Democratic vote. I mean, the base is already driven. (laughs) I mean, they're going to be there. And so the question is, does uh, this issue expand into suburban women and independents, and does it make them go to the polls when they would not have otherwise. And I think the verdict is out on that. We also have to realize uh, the pro-life issue, uh, reducing abortions, has also driven uh, the Republican base. And so uh, they are energized as well. Uh, You know, I've always really tried to study uh, this issue, and my first reaction to a national ban was negative simply because for 40 years I've advocated for this to be returned to the states. And so, you know, it's a little contradictory to that position to, again, try to do a a national uh, prohibition at some level like Senator Graham has proposed. But there is some logic to it. The Supreme Court has said this issue has to go back to legislative bodies and not uh, the courts. Uh, Secondly, uh, I think there is a good contrast here. The Democrats have offered national Uh, uh, rules on abortion. It's just that they want to be able to extend abortion up to the time of birth. And so what Lindsay has done is provided a contrast to the Democrat position with the Republican position. And then thirdly, there is a a good constitutional question here. Is this uh, constitutional to have a national uh, restriction or guidelines on it whenever fundamentally the Constitution leaves public health decisions to the states. So I think there's a lot to be resolved and worked through on that. Uh, Obviously, it's not going to go anywhere between now and the election. Uh, And and there's going to have to be, uh, you know, somebody in control that can actually get some legislation passed before that would be relevant. Meantime, abortion is outlawed in in your state, in Arkansas. Uh, There is not um, any exception for rape or incest. You've talked about this. Uh, This is a trigger law that you signed um, way back when. And and then, of course, we had the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe versus Wade. uh, And this trigger law went into effect. And afterwards, you said that there should be an exception for rape or incest. Um, is first of all, you know, critics might say, well, that's a walk back or, hey, you shouldn't have signed that. Do you have any regrets about that? And, and secondly, do you see that changing? Well, uh, you know, that, first of all, it's a good question because it seems to the average observer that I'm all over the map on it <laughs> because, you know, I historically and I 
I believe that uh, we ought to limit abortion except in three exceptions, the life of the mother, rape, and incest. This bill comes to my desk that does not have the two other exceptions, rape and incest. I sign the bill because I always sign pro-life bills and it saves lives. Uh, and also in Arkansas, it's unique because you override the governor's veto by a simple majority vote. And so whenever it had overwhelming support, it would have not been a uh, healthy uh, process to, uh, to uh, veto that. Uh, and so we also have to remember that these trigger laws were passed uh, when it was somewhat theoretical because we did not know that Roe versus Wade was going to be re reversed. Now that it has become the law of the land and the authority has returned to the states, this is we're going to continue this debate state by state as to what are the proper exceptions, how do you define those, what's our experience teaches. So the issue is not over, and I continue to support the rape and incest exceptions, but you have to deal with practical reality. It's going to have to uh, be looked at again by uh, legislators, and we'll see where that goes. But for now, we have the trigger law in place, and uh, abortions are prohibited in Arkansas except for uh, to save the life of the mother. Governor, I want to zoom out if we can. We, we've talked about a lot of specific issues uh, so far on, on the episode here, but let's zoom out and talk about Republicanism today. W what does it mean to be a Republican? W what do Republicans stand for today? Because we've watched a metamorphosis of the party over the last 20 years or so. Fiscal conservatism, which, which was popular in the you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, that seems to be gone uh, you know, foreign policy hawks, defense hawks, those don't seem to be around very much anymore, maybe with the exception of yourself, uh, because the party's looking a lot more inward. So 2022 here, what do Republicans stand for in your estimation? I believe those principles are still very active and alive and uh, drive the majority of Republican votes. Uh, you look at uh, fiscal responsibility, We've reduced uh, state employees by 14% in Arkansas since I've been governor. We've reduced government in that sense. Uh, we have lowered taxes uh, from 7% individual tax rate down to 4.9%. And governors are doing these kind of things across the board. That's fiscal conservatism. And you're right, uh, during the Trump administration, we actually got away from it. He says, go big, which is talking about going big on spending. And so uh, there's been some drift on that, but I think it's still very fundamental to our party. Uh, the second link is, uh, you know, uh, strong national security, strength. That was a principle that we've had. Uh, I think that is absolutely still there, our support for Ukraine. Now, there's an element of the party. Uh, there's an element of the media uh, that talks about, you know, we shouldn't be in Ukraine. I think that is totally wrong. We're supporting freedom. And that's a debate we have, but I think it's still a very important element. Now, the third part of uh, Republican principles or our base is the cultural conservatism. And cultural conservatism has enlarged uh, itself and been more dominant because people are very legitimately concerned about how government seems and businesses seem to be driving a very social liberal agenda. And so that has been front and center. I think we have to remind ourselves we are conservative, and the solution to the cultural issues that we see is not big government coming in and telling business what to do. It should be uh, our communities that are strong. It is local leadership, local decision-making, 
families that are stronger. That's how you change the culture through our faith-based organizations and through our communities. Let's don't use the power of government to solve our problems whenever there's a better way. Governor, your nephew as a an Arkansas state senator made big headlines, of course, uh, by deciding to leave the Republican Party and become an independent uh, while in office. I'm curious, uh, over these years, have you ever had any thoughts of leaving your party? And have you ever felt like your party has left you? Uh, the answer is no and no. Uh, I mean, I ran four years ago in a Republican primary. I had someone come at me from the right, and I got 70% of the primary vote. Uh, and so uh, you can win. And Arkansas is a very, very red state, very conservative. Uh, and then secondly, uh, yes, my nephew left, and I uh, counseled him, you should not do this. <laughs> you know, stay and fight within the Republican Party. I know he had uh, some legitimate concerns and frustrations, but, you know, he chose to uh, fight uh, the battle from an independent standpoint. I want to fight for uh, the principles I believe in within the Republican Party, and uh, I think it's a fight worth having, uh, and uh, I've, I'm not going to give up on that. When you talk about that primary margin of victory there, uh, that sounds like a pitch. That sounds like something that you might be talking to people about if and when you do decide to to do this in uh, 2024, because you had somebody who was coming at you from the right, and and not only were you able to win, but by a huge margin. That's right, and and the that's 30 percent that voted against me in a primary, and those are very loud voices, and so you've got to endure loud voices. Uh, but I got 70 percent of the vote. That's a, that's a pretty good victory, and uh, and and I I brought them into the fold. So. You can win, and what is concerning is that so often a Republican leader will say, "I don't want to cast this tough vote because I don't want to. I don't want to have those loud voices all over me. I don't want to uh, cause a Republican primary." That's you, you've got to avoid that kind of thinking uh, because you can win. It's always not the most pleasant thing, but you've got to debate in a large, diverse Republican Party ideas. And you got to defend your ideas, and there's going to be disagreement on it. We've got to learn that we can have these kind of discussions and not pull the party apart, but make us stronger because of those discussions. Governor, you have something called an Ideas Summit coming up in Bentonville, October 19th. You're talking diplomacy, China, Russia, education, the border, uh, faith, uh, et cetera. A lot of big names will be there as well. What do you expect, though, to, to actually come of any of those ideas? Uh, first of all, it's going to showcase nationally that uh, we've got to be about ideas and problem solving and not chaos creating. Uh, there's going to be a discussion about real ideas, both globally uh, as well as through education, investing in middle America. It's about values. We can talk about these things, and everybody that's coming is going to have an idea. And so ideas are going to be presented, thought leaders, and, you know, where we need to go. But it's going to be based upon the principles that uh, I've articulated. Uh, and so the Idea Summit is very important in that regard, just to showcase as we go into the midterm elections, our candidates need to be talking about those kind of ideas, uh, problem solving, 
and not the past. And yeah. I think our candidates are shifting and will win on that message. When you talk about the past there, though, we see so many people on the ballot right now, so many Republicans on the ballot across the country and certainly here in Texas who are focused on 2020. They are still denying that election result. Are you concerned about that going into this midterm for Republicans nationwide? Well, sure. It's, a, it's not a winning message. Uh, the future always wins. It's not the last election. And, uh, you know, I, I hope people can shift and talk about ideas. And I haven't followed the candidates in Texas that much, but I have, you know, the Senate candidates across the country, and it's worrisome. So, uh, you know, there, there has to be a shift from whatever happened in the primary, uh, and you've got to be realistic. You've got to forget 2020, and you've got to be able to focus uh, on uh, the problems that we face in America from border security to inflation uh, to just the pocketbook issues that really are hurting people in our community. Governor, way back when you were appointed as a U.S. attorney by then President Ronald Reagan, uh, and I would just love to hear your thought on uh, one of the headlines that's just been dominating the news for weeks now, and that is these highly classified documents that were found in former President Trump's residence. What's your thought on that being a, a former U.S. attorney? Well, it's unacceptable. Uh, whenever you have classified uh, documents, if you want to declassify them, there's a process for that. Uh, you don't just willy-nilly uh, have them floating around uh, a resort. And uh, it's pretty fundamental and basic. I've had my uh, top secret clearances. I've dealt in that world uh, for, for some time. And you think about Ronald Reagan, he had such respect for the Oval Office that uh, he wouldn't even take off his jacket uh, and, and go in there without a suit on. He just respected the office of the president. Now, let me elaborate, though, a little bit uh, on Mar-a-Lago. Uh, I think we're going to wind up pretty much where we were with Hillary Clinton. Uh, I don't think it's good for our country to have uh, president, former President Trump indicted. Uh, you look at Hillary Clinton the finding of the investigation was that she was ex exceedingly reckless in handling national security information. That was the finding. They investigated it, they reached that conclusion, and they said, we're not going to indict. And unless there is something more that than what we see now, unless it rises to the level of absolute corruptness, then I think they sh should and would reach probably the same decision. So let's get this turmoil over. The national interest is simply to get those documents uh, that are of national security classification back in the hands of the proper officials and protected, protecting that information. That's where we've got to get to. The sooner we get there, the better. Governor, I think one of the differences with this, from my understanding, the Department of Justice in this case with President Trump is alleging that there was an obstruction there, that he wasn't cooperating, that his team said, oh, we gave you everything back. When the FBI executed the search warrant, they say they found things that were there. I think that that's the, isn't that where criminal charges might lie if, if, uh, if there are any that are pursued? Well, sure. I mean, there's potential criminal charges on how classified information is handled, on obstruction, uh, on perjury. I mean, all of those are elements that can be investigated. I'm just saying that you're dealing with a former president of the United States, and uh, we all want to have equal justice there. But, uh, you know, it would be terrible for our country to go through that process with a former president. And he and I don't agree on a lot of issues, particularly on style. 
uh, and, and, and leadership, but I don't think that's good, uh, and I hope they can get to the bottom of it quickly, shut it down. Again, if there's evidence of corruptness, that's different. But I don't think that's the case. When you talk about how the two of you don't agree, uh, that's you know an understatement in some uh, cases, uh, as we've seen over the past several years. Why are you one of the few, Governor, who will say that publicly? Who will who will come out and and mark a position and, and have for several years now and say I don't I don't agree with him and 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 feel like you can go toe to toe? But we don't see that uh, uh, with a lot of other Republicans. Uh, so I'm curious why that is. And secondly, do you hear rumblings from them, though, in private that they agree with you? Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, I think the uh, uh, donor base of the party is looking for options. Uh, I think uh, much of the base is as well. And, you know, there's a lot of governors, there's a lot of leaders that agree 100 percent with uh, my my thoughts on this. Uh, but, you know, it's probably not to their advantage to be talking about it publicly. I just have a habit of answering questions, and that sometimes that gets me in a little bit of trouble. Uh, but, you know, I supported uh, President Trump for his reelection. I was chairman of his uh, campaign in Arkansas. And, and even at that time, I had disagreed publicly from time to time on things that I thought were indefensible. Uh, and so... It's not unusual for me to continue that. And, of course, with January 6th, which I think was uh, terrible for our democracy, uh, that's where uh, I had to speak out more. And, and I think it's important to uh, uh, not condone that through silence. Governor, your website's fantastic, by the way. Um, maybe you should do a, a starter course for uh, other governors across the state on, on uh, content your weekly addresses are fantastic. I was going through some of your weekly addresses to, to get ready for this episode, and, and you talk about in one of them how Arkansas has worked together with all of its neighbors, Oklahoma, Missouri, Tennessee, Louisiana. No mention of Texas in there. Are, are we not playing in the sandbox? Oh, no. Of course, I work <laughs> with uh, Texas on uh, border security. I've sent resources here, and, uh, uh, and I expect and, and I expect that uh, there'll be some other issues that we can expand to. So we have a very good relationship. And by the way, I always like this statistic. Uh, at one time, 40% of the entering freshmen at the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville come from Texas. Yeah. And so, so we like Texas. Well, and, they get uh, in-state tuition there, too, uh, when they're coming from Texas, do they not? That's pretty good partnership, I would say. Uh, it's good. a great partnership for a lot of parents out there, and, and, and it's a great school. And if people haven't visited, by the way, the campus there is absolutely amazing. You, you do live in a beautiful state there, Governor. Um, let me look at Little Rock here as, we, you know, as our time winds down with you. You have two interesting case studies there in Little Rock if, and we'll say it again, if you decide to run for president. What would be your takeaways from the way Bill Clinton did it and the way Hillary Clinton did it? Are there lessons to be gleaned from both of them if you end up making a run? Well, first of all, I hadn't thought about that question. Hmm. Uh, but in terms of uh, Bill Clinton, uh, you know, whenever he ran, of course, he was almost mocked. Uh, because he came from a small state, what kind of chance do you have? And he uh, obviously persevered. Uh, he had a break whenever uh, uh, Governor 
uh, Cuomo decided not to run, who was sort of the gargantuan figure at that time, and then he persevered. Now, that's probably about the only lesson that you can derive from it. And, uh, you know, in terms of, of uh, Mrs. Clinton, of course, she was the first lady of Arkansas, but then she ran, uh, you know, from her base in New York. And I think the, uh, uh, you know, the lesson there is that, uh, uh, you know, this is a very mobile society, and it doesn't really matter that you come from a small state. Uh, we're all part of the same fabric of this great country, and uh, to me, that's exciting. And with my experience, uh, I think that uh, I've been on the national stage for some time. So uh, that's the only lesson I can see is that it, geography really does not play that heavily into a candidate. So you're still trying to decide on whether to run. I'm curious as you're uh, you know, mulling this, is there a plan B in your head that competes with the idea of running for president? Because you're going to be term limited out of your job here. Do you have a plan B that sort of bounces around in your in your mind? See, Governor, though, before you answer that, Wheeler's always looking for a backup plan for himself. So if he can steal yours, <laughs> Forever. he'll go And for I it. think everybody go. should be, by so, the way. So let's hear yours, Governor. <laughs> oh, I got a plan B and C. Uh, no, people think I've just been in the public sector all my life, but I've spent, uh, you know, a couple decades in the private sector, and I would look forward to that as a plan. Of course, I'm blessed to have uh, seven grandchildren, and uh, there's not anything better than following uh, them in basketball and tennis and all their other activities. So, uh, you know, I I cherish life, and I want to make a difference in the public arena, but uh, don't count me out in terms of family and uh, the private sector as well. Governor, uh, thanks for your time. But before before we let you go, I, I got to say you we've talked to a lot of folks on this podcast and just over the years and, and what Jason and I do. You sound an awful lot like somebody who's not done with politics. Well, I, I hope not. Uh, I hope there's an opportunity for service. We'll see. Uh, we'll decide that next year. But y'all are great uh, on the show. I enjoy the conversation and I like the relaxed atmosphere. You know, the only thing that bothers me is you got a tie on. I, I can't believe I'm the only one in a tie because I have to speak at an event in a few minutes. Next time, I want you to have a have a, a Texas craft beer with with us. We'll make sure that you get one. We'll enjoy that. Or maybe yep. we all raise a, a an Arizona beer or, or an Arkansas beer rather uh, in, instead of that. Uh, Governor, yeah. thank you so much for uh, taking the time with us. We really appreciate having you. Yeah, great. Good to be with you. Thank you. So here's my question about this, Wheeler, and and. You know, anybody who's watched this would, would probably have the same question. Is he far enough right for where the, the base of the GOP is today? It, it seems like that they prefer a lot more flamethrowers. He kind of mentioned it. He said we need somebody who's willing to stand up and fight. Um, that's always kind of a, a, a metaphor, um, obviously. But, but the GOP base has really looked more at that and more for that in candidates. Um, you know, not just for president, but but for every other job. Yeah, uh, he hasn't been shy about uh, criticizing who would likely be uh, the front runner uh, if he were to run in 2024, and that is uh, former President Trump. He's not been shy about that. You do wonder, you know, as you said, is he far enough to the right? And uh, are his elbows sharp enough <laughs> for, for the crowd that will probably you know, appear on that uh, debate stage and on and, and in those primaries for uh, 2024. 
don't know. Uh, but but we will see because it sounds like, <laughs> you know, he didn't answer it directly straight on. He answered it more than most people do. Uh, but it very much sounds like he's uh, he's going to do. That. Yeah. And when people talk about who's going to run for president, everyone you know wonders whether Trump might run again for the Republican nomination. Uh, everyone talks about Ron DeSantis. Now, Ron DeSantis has got more earned media and more talk and more speculation than, than I think anybody yeah. in, in recent years. Uh, whether he actually runs or not, we'll have to wait and see. And that's largely, I, I bet, going to depend on whether uh, Donald Trump uh, runs again in uh, 2024. Mm-hmm. There's also been talk, Wheeler, as well, about whether Greg Abbott might make a run yep. for, for president in 2024. Um, you know, he wrote a book a few Still years ago. he got a lot of money ago. in the he bank. He has a lot of money in the bank. He wrote a book a few years ago. Uh, all prerequisites, obviously, for, for a, a national run like that. Um, to my knowledge, he hasn't been in Iowa and South Carolina and New Hampshire like mm-hmm. a number of other people have been. He, he might have been up there, but I'm, I might have missed that. But I don't think he's, he's made those runs. He's obviously been a lot more focused on his reelection here uh, next month. Yeah, he's kind of got a big campaign right in front right. of him here, which, again, we are coming up on that right now. Uh, and, you know, just a reminder to you, if you uh, if you plan to make your voice heard, that early voting starts soon. Make sure that you're registered for that. Uh, that's going to be a big what, one. What, what, uh, what do you so, mean if you plan to make your voice heard? Yes. When you, you make know, your a lot voice of people heard. don't No, You know what? Well, you know, people go, yeah, of course, I'm going to make my voice. But then they, they don't. They don't do Election, it. You know, they don't show up. I say this. to It doesn't matter what side you're on. Elections have consequences. Elections they do. And it affects your life. A hundred percent. So take that time, especially if you can do it in early voting. It's a lot easier, you know, get it done beforehand and don't have to stand in line on the day. Of. No doubt. We'll see if we can get DeSantis and even Abbott on the podcast here soon. We haven't reached out to DeSantis. We've reached out to Abbott. Um, still kind of get pushed down the uh, push down the track a little bit on that, but we'll, we'll keep trying. Um, and these mm-hmm. are some of the questions we'll ask them as well, too. But until we talk to you again next week, I hope you have a great week. Thanks, for, as always, for listening to Yolitics. We'll talk to you soon.